I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Morgan Campbell joins me now. He's just published a memoir, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines That Made Us. It's a book about his family that fought a lot. It's also about his family's migration from the United States to Canada. It's about race, racism, and um, coming of age as somebody who is black. It's also about music. It's about family, family relations and grudges. Two unforgettable characters in the book, Morgan's maternal grandfather, Claude Jones, a noted pianist and jazz contemporary and friend of Oscar Peterson and George Shearing, was a legendary grudge holder, as was his paternal grandmother, Mary. She lived in Chicago, but despite the geographical distance, she cast a shadow on the family. There were resentments and betrayals. The growth of Morgan, a noted writer and award-winning journalist, is throughout the book. Uh, we see that in the music he likes and the popular culture he consumes. The way he watches television or listens to radio would be somewhat foreign to somebody coming of age today, and he lovingly uh, chronicles that in the book. In his uh, search for identity, Morgan also writes about the touchstones that shaped his life, like sport, football in particular, as well as James Baldwin. It's exciting to read Morgan as a young man encounter Baldwin's writing and what that changes in Morgan's mind and outlook. For over 18 years, Morgan Campbell worked with the Toronto Star, establishing himself as one of Canada's eminent sports writers. He is currently a senior contributor to, at uh, CBC Sports and a contributor uh, to the New York Times. His noted writing has highlighted the intersections of sport with uh, race, culture, politics, and business. His new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. We spoke this past Friday. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program Morgan Campbell. Mr. Campbell, good morning. Hey, good morning, folks. Good to hear from you. Thanks for joining us. Um, there are, uh, as I was just telling you before we started, so, so many memorable characters in the book. Um, I'd, I'd like to begin with your, your, your uh, mother's father, your grandfather, uh, Claude Jones. I guess Claude yeah. would be the way he'd like it pronounced, right? Uh, no, no, he's Claude. It's just the fact that he had some friends from Quebec, and they called him Claude, and he <laughs> thought that was cool, but he didn't make people call him Claude. Yeah, he was a noted. Because yeah. his dad, his dad was uh-huh. Claude too, and his dad was from Texas, and nobody called him Claude down there. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. so he's a noted pianist, highly regarded in his field by people like Oscar yeah. Peterson and George Shearing, who were contemporaries. I, I felt um, quite at home. I'm 41, but I—that's th- the kind of music that I like. And so okay. when I hear, you, when I read you in the book talking about um, certain songs, for example, um, that he performed. Um, because we get a sense of the kind of music that you like in the book as well. Um, yes. My sense is that the songs that he like or that he played that he liked, those aren't really on your your Apple Music or your Spotify, are they? No, they are. Oh, they are. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like I happen to be younger than him, but uh, <laughs> I listen to a lot of jazz, and I think that was one of the things that surprised him as I grew up. Was that he always just assumed that we weren't really interested uh-huh. in the kind of music he played or you know what happened in his career. So when he would tell stories about his career, he would you know skip over a lot of important details because he just assumed that people my age, my sisters and I, weren't interested. That we just wanted the punchline. But um, as we grew up and grew older, and he kind of figured out that I was into jazz and that I knew how to listen to jazz, he would talk to me differently yeah. about jazz because. He knew that I understood the language. Obviously, I didn't 
understand the language like he did because he was a professional, but I understood the language. So that's why I could talk to him about being a left-handed pianist, you know, and what that meant for his career because you play the melody of any song that's on the right hand, but that's not his natural hand. And he said, no, that's actually an advantage for me mm. because most people can't play the bottom notes, but those were easier for me to play because I'm left-handed. And the right hand, you just catch up because you're just always using it. So those... I, yes, I do really love, you know, my, my 90s R&B, especially the slow jam. Uh-huh. 100% I'm into uh, a certain type of jazz. Yeah, it's, it's very loving how you, you talk about certain songs, you know, September in the Rain, for example. Um, <laughs> and and um, you, you, it, and that builds into your, your consumption of popular culture. Um, you talk about the music and the television that you you liked growing up, or that you saw growing up, and then the, even the way you invoke certain call letters for for radio stations and television stations. I found that um, yeah. because that's uh, you know I'm I'm slightly younger than you are, but but that that's the way that I remember the stuff that I was into growing up. You know. Well, it occurs to me too. It occurred to me as I was writing this book. Um, that I was documenting, you know, my life and my family's background, but also tapping into ways of life that don't exist anymore or ways of life that are about to not exist. Yeah. And one of the things that we lose in the YouTube and Spotify era is this, is local radio, local forms of music. Um, you know, you think about the morning shows. Uh, here in Toronto, it's different because these are big stations. If you listen to, like, black radio in the U.S., um, every city used to have their own morning, morning morning show. Yeah. And then it got to the point where there were only two morning shows. There was Tom Joyner, and then there was Steve Harvey. And now it's Steve Harvey and The Breakfast Club. And so many of these local DJs and local personalities have been put out of business because uh, these companies have consolidated. And so what I wanted to do was tap into and remind people that yeah, those call letters used to mean something. You know, I was growing up, WBLK, that was the black station in Buffalo, they were very similar to WGCI in Chicago, but they weren't the same. And each each station had its quirks. And that, to me, was, 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 was special. But again, with, like, the consolidation of all these media companies, you get a lot less of that. And everyone getting their music off of YouTube and Spotify, that's, it's great, you know, for a lot of artists to... to, to spread their music beyond their local boundaries. But, again, a lot of what get, get, gets lost is what's local. The other thing that, that I got out of reading My Fighting Family is how, um, uh, not only how you grow up, say, but, but how you, you've come to peace with a lot of the, the, the family members, especially how complicated they are. And um, <laughs> complicated is an understatement for, for some of these, these people that we meet in the book. But in terms of your grandfather, uh, Claude, um, you make peace with how he is. Yeah. And and um, especially how he holds a grudge. And a, a lot of people might read that <laughs> and, and find the, the grudge holding kind of funny. But, I mean, it's a little different when you grow up with that in your life, right? Yes and no. So it's different when you grow up with it. But at the same time, whatever happens in your family is normal to you. Yeah. Because it's what you grew up with. Someone else reading it thinks it's really strange and noteworthy but for us it was normal just like when my mom grew up yeah they would have famous musicians just pass through their house to come by and say hi to their folks that was normal to them to us it would seem very strange right if um 
Beyonce or whoever passed <laughs> by the house yeah. to say what's up to my mom. But to my parents, if Errol Garner came by the house or, or Oscar Peterson, that was normal. So with my grandfather, like, yeah, people reading it, a lot of the stunts he pulled and the, the, the grudges he held seemed very far-fetched. But to us, it was normal. But for me, like, coming to terms with that, one of the things I wanted to do with this book uh, was reckon with um, what it means to love people who are not always likable. Mm. You know, to have empathy for people who aren't always empathetic figures. And with my mom's dad and my dad's mom, you know, they were the two biggest protagonists and accelerants in so many of these family fights. Like, that was what I had to do. And, it was, you know, it was a process and it was a place I reached in order to write the book, and it was a place I explored in writing this book. And when you talk about your 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 um, father's mother, Mary, Grandma Mary, um, yes. you don't um, forgive her necessarily for a lot of, of the things that she did, but you, you obviously try to understand her. And um, that growth in yourself, I think, is fascinating because I think a lot of people will understand. And, you know, my, my parents are Filipino. My, um, so I understand when I read um, about Claude Jones and, and Grandma Mary. I've seen characters like that in, in one's own life. Um, yeah. And so it, it's, it's remarkable to see the growth in, in how you view them. And I, I guess, is that the passage of time, is that growing older as well that, that, that helps you do that? Yeah, that's part of it. Um, and for each of us in the family, we all live through all this, but we all see it from a different point of view. Um, and we all, each of us has a slightly different relationship with everyone else in the family, even among siblings, how we relate mm. to our parents, how we relate to our grandparents. Yeah. Very much the same, but it's all slightly different. And so, um, you know, for my mom, she would say, no, don't show Granny Mary any empathy. She doesn't deserve it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But for me, you know, she's still my grandmother. And again, I, it, I can try to love her even if I don't necessarily like her. And even if I abhor some of the things she's done, uh, you know, to our family, to our father. Um, and so it's, it's, the part of it is about maturing. And then there's also, um, you know, the way I feel about, uh, like, each of those grandparents. Yeah whom I love but didn't always like and sometimes and again like they did some really underhanded stuff to a lot of different people in the family uh, but I'm still their, their, their grandchild and there's something I inherit from them even if it's not um, even if it's not material and even if it's not, even if it's not uh, personality right and, so, and the way I feel about them is, is the way I feel about the United States like it's a part of me my family is from Chicago uh-huh. uh, you know their my ancestors are from across the South, like that is what we are. We're African American. We can't tell you where in Africa we come from, but we can mm-hmm. tell you exactly where in the U.S. we come from. You know, we come from Sumter, South Carolina, from uh, Ruston, Louisiana, uh, from Marshall, Texas. We come from places like that. And but the United States is what it is, and so I embrace that part of me that is my heritage, even if I don't always like what the country uh, has turned into. So it's the same thing with my grandparents. Yeah, that's the same thing with Canada as well, because you, you contend with racism in Canada in the book and reflect on that. Um, 
because there, as you, there's a scene in the book where your class is watching Birth of a Nation, yeah. and a lot of people get um, nostalgic about the technology in the film. But, but <laughs> you understood at an early age that it, it, it was about racism, wasn't it? That, 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 or yeah. the, the, the people who liked the film or watched the film at the time, because it was quite popular when it came out, um, yeah. were nostalgic about the racism in the film. Um, well, so, so how, how do you think we can have these conversations about race in Canada, especially because we need to have in this country as well, right? Yeah, well, with that uh, passage in particular, in fairness to my classmates, um, they were just parroting what the, um, what the textbook had told them about why that film was so popular. Because mm-hmm. they knew, especially in the early 90s, we didn't have YouTube. So the chances of somebody actually getting their hands on Birth of a Nation yeah. to watch what it's about were very, were very slim. There was, it was not going to happen. So what happened then reminds me of what's happening now when you think about like uh, major jurisdictions in the U.S. wanting to rewrite history books to cast slavery as something more benign and to call slaves migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the surface, it's, try, it's, it's to try to, uh, you know, contemporize the language. And on the surface, it's to try to uh, minimize, you know, guilt the white students might feel about having ancestors who own slaves. But, yes, it's an attempt to whitewash history um, and absolve people who don't even want or ask for absolution, mm-hmm. right? I mean, most slave holders are unrepentant, uh, even though and found ways, you know, in the Bible to justify what they were doing, even though other passages of the Bible would tell them that what they were doing was wrong. So what happens in the class is that, you know, these kids are just reading this textbook that says Birth of a Nation was popular in Canada because the, the, the filmmaking techniques were so advanced. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about the plot. And, you know, the difference between me and my classmates is that I brought some cultural capital to this discussion because my parents, uh, again, were black Americans, and they wanted and intentionally nurtured this connection between us in Canada and black America. And so when these Black History Month documentaries, when they would come on uh, WNED from Buffalo, the yeah. uh, public broadcaster, you know, my parents would record them or sit us down to watch them. So I remember seeing a documentary about uh, portrayals of black Americans in uh, late 19th century, early 20th century media. And there was a big section in this documentary about Birth of a Nation. It was such a huge movie. Um, but it was incredibly racist. And it depicts the birth of the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan in this movie are heroes, right? They're the ones that come in to save white people from these black people who have gone spiral because slavery is not enforced anymore to keep black people civilized in the telling of this book. And our class had no way of knowing that. You know, if they didn't grow up in our house, it didn't happen to watch that PBS documentary. But because my parents uh, encouraged my sisters and I uh, to know and to understand and to engage with uh, black American history and culture, I brought that cultural capital to the class. Yeah, yeah. Um, Another exciting part in the book is, is when you discovered James Baldwin. Um, when you when when you write about that, I mean it's it, it's quite exciting to read, um, and um, you 
describe how it changes your life and, and how you see the world, especially your place in the world. Um, can, yes. Can you, go ahead. Well, what go is ahead. it like when, when, when you, you, your mind changes like that? Because that, that only happens very few times in one's life, especially in one's formative years. But it's awfully memorable, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so there's two things at work there. Like, one, it, back then, uh, you know, I was already into reading, but I didn't read a lot of books. I was, I read, but I read Sports Illustrated obsessively. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, it just felt like I had graduated, you know, to reading, even though The Fire Next Time, that book is 140 pages long, and the, the, the type is big. Like you can read it in a day. Yeah. Um, but it felt like I had graduated to becoming a real reader, and that's sort of what, pushed me on this path or put me more, more securely on this path, more firmly on this path, more in the middle of this path of becoming a writer. Because here's this guy, you know, who grew up in Harlem um, in this family with a bunch of siblings, like a stubborn dad, like a proud, hardworking, stubborn dad. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I know what that's like, you know, and a, a proud, hardworking, uh, sort of underappreciated mom. I know what that's like too. And in the fire next time, like the the first part of that book, um, sorry, the second part of that book, it it it, it uh, really goes into depth about what happens, you know, in Harlem, in James Baldwin's Harlem, when you turn fourteen and you start to realize how difficult life is about to become. You know, I didn't grow up in the ghetto like James Baldwin did, but it sort of. I didn't get the sense that my life was about to become difficult in the way it does if you are 14 years old in James Baldwin's Harlem. Mm-hmm. But it did sort of uh, jumpstart me to thinking about what my future might look like. You know what I need? Uh, you know, Baldwin was calling it like a gimmick or a thing, something that pole vaults you up out of the ghetto. Uh, for me, my circumstances were not that dire, but I did feel like, all right, I do need to start thinking about something beyond just watching hip-hop videos on TV about something I can do, something I can, I can be good at, something I can turn into something. You know, and that's how uh, indirectly led me to start taking sports more seriously, but it did definitely lead me to start taking reading and writing more seriously. But in terms of how Baldwin plays right now, um, what I wanted to do was uh, censor him a little bit more and give readers who maybe aren't familiar with him, or a lot of people are familiar with him because in all these books, he has so many, like, stunning, spicy, punchy one-liners that play well on social media. <laughs> yeah. And you see you see him quoted on Twitter and sure. on Instagram all the time, yeah. and that's beautiful. But I, what I want people to understand is that there's a whole body of work. He was not just a guy sitting there, uh, you know, coming up with hot takes, 140 characters or 280 characters at a time. Like, there's entire books and, like, an entire body of work worth exploring with Jake Baldwin. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, you're a marvelous writer, obviously. We, we, we've read you for years, um, uh, and you're no slouch as a writer. But are, are there challenges when you're writing about yourself, when you're writing memoir, especially when it when it's uh, family members as well? I mean, it, it, does that take a different kind of writer than, than the one that you were at one point? Oh, yeah, 100%, because one, as a sports writer, even if you're writing features, now, you know, I, I wrote a lot of features, and to the extent that I still do journalism, um, I still write a lot of features. And a lot of feature writing is about making somebody comfortable with you, like reporting a feature story, interviewing for a feature, feature story. Making somebody comfortable enough with you 
that they open up to you and get past their talking points and just really speak honestly to you. And sometimes that requires, like, a little vulnerability from the person you are interviewing. And, um, you know, it takes time to build up that kind of uh, rapport. But as a reporter, you don't have to be all that vulnerable. Uh, but when you write a memoir, you do have to be vulnerable and willing to to describe um, and explore the times you fell on your face, um, which is very different from, you know, what we do in, in as journalists in sports journalism. Um, and so the difficult part for me was learning to be vulnerable. Like when you write columns, you know, you're the person that has the answers. Mm-hmm. And you, can be, you can be really confident. Um, when you write a memoir, it's about you searching for the answers. So you're not as confident but you can't let that uh, uh, drag on your writing, right? Because you still have to tell the story in plain English that people under, understand. But that search for the answers, and, you know, and the search for the answers doesn't always yield, you know, one solid specific answer. Sometimes, most times it doesn't, but it's about the search. But that's a completely different way of thinking than being the columnist that has uh, all the answers. So all of these things are adjustments. Now, in terms of my family... Yeah, like you read the book. We're all, we're all smart, sharp, opinionated, stubborn people. And so uh, I finished most of the book uh, before I started asking anyone in my family questions. But, the, you know, the questions were mostly about fact-checking. Mm. Because, you know, if I invite too many people into the creative process, the risk you run is that the people around you, and this is not like to criticize them or whatever, but this yeah. is just like reflective, you know, start trying to, nudge you or just wind up nudging you into the story that each of them would have written right. uh, because again each of us has different points of view and different relationships with like the big characters in this book and so I didn't want to run that risk <laughs> and so you know they knew what I was doing but you know a lot of the contact with the family came at the back end when I was back checking yeah. so, so now that the book is out what's the reaction been from some of the family members who um, certainly know the people that you write yeah. about or even are depicted themselves, say. Yeah, the ones that have read it have really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think the whole family has read it yet. Mm-hmm. If I get a bunch of angry phone calls, <laughs> then we'll know. If I get a bunch of congratula- congratulatory phone calls, then we'll know. You, I have to give that a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, the, it's um, such a – there are beautiful parts in the book, especially when you talk about – um, uh, sports and you invoke sports um, yeah. like the, the, the family's relationship with the Chicago Bears for example you tell that story <laughs> in tandem with the, the breakdown of your parents marriage um, it, it's um, it, it's just a marvelous way of looking at how memory also shapes um, life itself um, when you uh, write about sports and, and you write about your own Growing up, you wanted to play in the NFL. Uh, when you look back at that, and and you think of of because uh, it's very easy for for um, a lot of us who who don't play sports to see what you might have done to to say make it happen. Did, did you think about that a lot when you're writing that part of the book? Say, did I think about which about wanting about making it say in, in football yourself? Um. I mean, I thought more about making it in football when I was young, when I was still young enough to make it in football. 
you know, one of the things that happens is once you get out to the broader world of, world of football, you re- start realizing how many levels of good there are. Mm. You know, so high school good is university average. University average is cut from the NFL. You see a lot of players who are really good in university, and they don't stick in the NFL. And so from the outside looking in, like us as fans who have never been to the NFL watching NFL games, you see a guy uh, mess up, or you just see a guy who's maybe a little bit outclassed, and you think that guy sucks, when in real life that guy is better than you could ever imagine mm-hmm. because you have not yeah. been through uh, the levels. But when I was young, you know, I really thought that uh, – that I would make the NFL, you know, and it, uh, making the NFL would solve all my money problems. Uh-huh. Um, but again, that confidence that I would make the NFL was born of the fact that I had not been to university yet and hadn't really seen all the really good players up close. Uh, but once you get out there and you, you play football with really good players, but you also like go to journalism school with really good writers, uh, you get to see sort of where you rank among your peers. So I figured out after a while that I was a better writer than a lot of good writers, but I was not a better football player than a lot of good football players. Mm. And so <laughs> I, uh, you know, and from there I started adjusting my focus from, you know, making the NFL, which after two years in university it was clear that was never going to happen, to trying to make something happen as a journalist. You, you um, write in the book, and it's a, it's a very thoughtful passage in the book about fighting, and because um, we do have to fight for the space that we need in the world, because a lot of people yeah. won't give you the space that you feel you deserve, or, or you know the, that that you you're entitled to, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, when you you talk, the title of the book is "My Fighting Family," but I mean, fighting itself is necessary, isn't it? Yeah, so fighting, it, it describes what happens in my family a lot of the time, but it's also a metaphor for how we navigate life yeah. and how, uh, how, for a lot of us, for most people, unless you're born really lucky, um, you have to fight for what you want and for a lot of us for what we need. And so, again... You know, my mom's dad, uh, he liked to fight with his family. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he enjoyed it, but he, whenever there, when there was a small, whenever there was a smaller fight going on, my mom's dad would jump into it. Uh, you know, a lot of it was that he just liked the attention and he didn't, he couldn't stand two other people getting more attention than him. <laughs> but there was something about him that just like everything had to be a fight, argument, debate, whatever it was. Um, but I started thinking about how he grew up, um, and it made perfect sense because they were the only black family in this white neighborhood, and you had teachers and school administrators and whoever that were always trying to shortchange you on whatever it was. So if you did not advocate for yourself, yeah. you weren't going to get. So my grandfather learned early, like, hey, if i got to go to the school board to get these teachers to treat me right, well, then that's what I'm going to do. And my parents would not do that because my parents are from the old country. They're from down south. You don't antagonize white people like that. But I'm a different generation. I'm from Chicago. I have rights. You guys tell me this is a meritocracy. You tell me there's no institutionalized racism here, no uh, Jim Crow by the rule book racism here. Prove it to me because I'm going to go to the school board and complain 
and you're going to treat me like you treat the other kids. And so that idea that so much of life is like a fight or a competition or a debate, like that gets drilled into him early, <laughs> you know, and he superimposes that template on like every type of family discussion, and that gets tiring, but you can see where it comes from. Yeah. Um, you also look ahead at the end of the book. Um, and yeah. I had to, 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 to think about this as I was reading the book, that there's something about getting all of this out, the, the past especially, as you get yeah. older. Does it make getting older, moving on, does it make the, the, the load, say, lighter on yourself? Sort of, because it's stuff you're going to wrestle with anyway, so you might as well just wrestle with it like with some structure in the same way that, uh, you know, you do better when you focus on something than you do when you're multitasking. So instead of having these questions, like, nagging at me forever, just go out and, and settle it. Like, for me, there's, there's the questions that the book answers, but it's also me about me as a writer. Like, all these years working at the Star, you know, sort of trying to establish myself as a, as a, as a top-tier sports writer, but knowing that I was capable of more. Um, but easy to think that you're capable of more and talk yourself into the idea that, it's cap- that you're capable of more while also saying, um, but being comforted by the reality that, you know, your job, your current job setup won't let you go after more. You can always say, yeah, I could have been better. Yeah, I'm better than those guys, but politics, often politics. Mm-hmm. Could have been better than those guys, but uh, opportunity, you know, I just didn't have it. Because you can always, um, because you've never had to prove it, talk yourself into thinking that you would have been better. And so it's something else to challenge yourself to be better. And this is, you know, and I wanted to do that. So that's what I did. Yeah. Morgan, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Congratulations and, and good luck with it. I so appreciate your time today. Anytime. If you have any more questions, uh, that's my cell phone I called you from. So just text me and we can be. Can Thanks for this, Morgan. All the best. Okay, I appreciate it. The book is called My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines That Made Us. It's published by McClelland and Stewart, its author, Morgan Campbell, join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantum.